Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we'll hear from two members of Fidelity's global asset allocation team, who should be familiar names to our podcast audience. This discussion was recorded at a recent live Fidelity Canada event, with host Gore Thompson, VP Regional Sales for Western Canada, being joined by Portfolio Manager David Tulk and Institutional Portfolio Manager Alain Collette on stage in Vancouver in front of an advisor audience. David and Alon field questions from the live audience, provide a positioning update on the several funds the team manages, and share their unique perspectives on the current market landscape. So as this was a discussion from an event, there are a couple of references to charts shown to the in-person audience. There is a lot to get to in today's intriguing discussion. We'll first hear from Dave Bushnell, Senior Vice President, Advisor Distribution, to get us started. This podcast was recorded on August 16th, 2022. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. So I thought we had a good morning. Very excited to kick off the afternoon with our GAA team. So we have Institutional Portfolio Manager Alon Collette and Portfolio Manager David Talk. Now, I want to give everyone just a little bit of sort of history or information on the team that they're part of. So both these gentlemen work out of Toronto alongside their colleague, David Wolf. We have a gentleman in Boston named Jeff Stein, and that really rounds out the team that's responsible for about $80 billion of assets for you, our advisor partners. But what's very interesting to think about is that they sit as part of the larger Fidelity Global Asset Allocation Team. And actually, I just asked David Wolf to check the number because I didn't want to highball it. That team currently runs about $900 billion of assets. So not only does this team spend a lot of their time with portfolio managers, many of whom you've seen today, but they spend a lot of their time with their peers from around the globe really figuring out how should we be angling our asset allocation? Where can we take advantage of? And again, having the global network that Fidelity has, I know definitely makes their job a little bit easier. So I'm thrilled to welcome everyone to the stage, the GAA team. The earlier session, we had the equity portfolio managers, three of them up here. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the term rock star. So if you have a really good year as an equity portfolio manager, you kind of get that you know, thing attached to you. If you have just one really good year, you give you a one hit wonder. So to keep with the musical analogy, you guys are really like conductors of a world-class orchestra, aren't you? Absolutely. No, that's okay. definitely the right way to look at it. So we as asset allocating portfolio managers, so we sit on top of all of the funds that have the asset allocation focus. And we're not trying to choose individual securities. What we do is we choose managers. So getting the right team together is the core part of our process. And you know, we think about the world through that lens as to bring the best of fidelity in terms of all of the individual building block managers together to provide for advisors a wide range of funds that have a range of 
a return and volatility type expectation. So really for every type of investor, there's a, a fund available for them. So why don't we take a look at all the mandates that you run for Canadian investors. So just have a quick scan of this. You can see they manage portfolios, the monthly income suite, dividend suite, private investment pools, and standalone uh, balanced mandates. So if we actually took a calculator out, the $900 billion that GA manages, what does it add up to in Canada? So we're around $80 billion wow. uh, so it's today across all of these funds. Okay, excellent. Good work. Okay, uh, in terms of FMP, that's been the extremely successful part of this kind of suite of products. Uh, what makes these portfolios different than some of the other funds that you manage? So the Fidelity Managed Portfolios, uh, which uh, you can think of as, as the flagship products across the lineup, these are probably our most flexible tactical funds. So there's a full range of benchmarks from an income focused all the way out to a growth focused with a balanced in between. And here again, the, the objective is for us to be tactical. So it starts with a well-defined benchmark and then we choose the team. So again, you know, we think of us as the conductor or as the hockey coach where we bring the different players to play. We come up with a strategy as what the right allocation is across uh, different asset classes, across geographies, what type of fixed income exposure we want between credit and government bonds. We think of also the degree of currency overlay we want to bring in into the portfolio as well. So once we have the team in place, that's really for us now to provide the tactical overlay. So for a given benchmark, we decide as to where we want to be overweight, where we want to be underweight, what out-of-benchmark allocations we can bring into the portfolio. Again, with the, the end objective uh, is to certainly manage through the cycle. So we want to certainly keep up in positive markets. In more difficult markets, we want to provide some downside protection because we think of these portfolios and indeed all of our portfolios really as core solutions for investors. So to have something that they can look at that provides diversification through the cycle is really the essence of, of what we're trying to do. And just on the slide behind us, uh, you can see you know, the success of that through an extended period of time where you can look at the accumulated return for the global balance managed portfolio compared to just you know, a very basic uh, generic benchmark of 60% Canadian equities and 40% Canadian bonds. And you can see uh, in the top two boxes, a lot of that comes from the tilts that we make in terms of the asset allocation positioning, uh, but also a lot of it comes from security selection. So this is the second way you can win with our portfolios is where you have all of the portfolio managers you know and love across all of these different asset classes. They are measured against their own benchmarks and their ability to leverage the research platform, find all the good ideas out there, turn over all the rocks that exist in the market and add value through their security selection only enhances the overall uh, return of our products through time. Okay, and obviously, so the top two bars really are the benefits of active management. Your Absolutely. Tilts and that's, the individual portfolio managers. That's core to our philosophy. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, and I'm just squinting here a little bit, but to the right side of this graph, does this include the most recent microvolatility? It does, yeah. And just a quick comment on, on the, the year we've experienced thus far. I mean, certainly the, the first half of the year has been, has been tough. It's difficult where you have both sides of a balanced fund under pressure. Uh, we'll get into certainly a lot of the reasons as to you know, why that's the case. But you, know, you think of a balanced fund with your equities providing a, a longer term return and your bonds providing insurance and bonds really haven't uh, lived up to that promise through the first half of, of this year. And this is something that you know, we look at as giving us an opportunity to use those active tilts to try to take away 
some of the, the challenges that existed with just purely a, a passive benchmark type exposure. So this is where using a currency overlay. So we'll certainly have a chance to talk about our views on currency and the Canadian dollar uh, specifically, but to have that lever we can pull to tilt the orientation of the fund through the currency lens is one way we can approve upon uh, a strategic benchmark. We use uh, a portable alpha strategy as well where we have the ability to use short futures positions to take some of the beta or broad exposure out of a market, but at the same time allowing our security selectors to have more capital to find really good ideas. So we can reduce the overall exposure to, for example, to a specific equity market, but those that are doing the security selection actually have more ability and more money with which they can bring the best ideas to the portfolio. So, you know, respecting the, the challenging market environment, what we've really tried to do is take the edge off some of those challenges by using different techniques along the active management route that we can bring into the portfolio. Okay. Uh, thank you, David, for those comments. Uh, Alon, why don't we transition to you? Just give us a bit of an update in terms of the current positioning of the portfolio. But before you do that, uh, if you could, just because you started with Fidelity relatively recently, you only had a couple of uh, months, I think, on the road sort of thing, uh, meeting with the wholesaling team and advisors. Uh, and then we went virtual. So a lot of people here have seen you, but just virtually. So thanks for coming out to Vancouver a second time. But for those that may not be too familiar with you, maybe just do a quick sure. uh, background check. Yeah, sure. You know, I think of that like equity manager versus rock star analogy. I wonder if rock stars think of themselves as equity managers. Like, I wonder if the reverse <laughs> reverse holds. I'm, I'm not sure that's the case. But um, yeah, so I started with the Canadian Asset Allocation team in January of last year. Um, so I actually started virtual. I started with Fidelity in 2014. Um, I'm Canadian, but I started down in Boston. Um, and I was the head of inflation and commodities research between 2014 and the end of 2020. Right when, when the most difficult thing about inflation was keeping a number that hadn't moved in 25 years, interesting every month. And then that number kind of tripled or quadrupled. Prior to that, I spent uh, some time at Bloomberg News. Before that, I, I was at the Bank of Canada, where, where I know David Talk and David Wolf from. Um, and before that, I was at SFU, mm. um, where I did my, my master's in economics. So hello to everyone from SFU back there. <laughs> uh, nice to see you here. I won't say hi to anyone from the other school in town, but uh, yes. <laughs> you know, very nice to see everyone from SFU. Yes, and very happy to be on the team. And, and, and again, I have a Western bias, so, so you'll, you'll always find me out here, uh, Gord. But, and, and happy to get into uh, to more of these funds as well. Great. So let's take a look at the active uh, positioning here. Yeah, let's kind of dig into this and discuss, first of all, what we're looking at, the process that we use, sorry, the process that we use to, to manage some of these funds, and then a few key points from this slide. So before we get into this fund, I think it'd be helpful to just briefly review our four pillar process that we use to manage all of the funds um, on our team. Um, this is a, this, that's one part of this discussion, right? If we come, if we do this conference again next year and the following year and 10 years from now, that's the one part of the discussion that will never change is that four pillar process because it has been so effective over such a long period to achieve those four and five Morningstar ratings and as, as my colleague Jeff Stein mentioned when I started, you know, we add basis points to the pile one at a time, right? And we do that with that process. So our process is based on four pillars, macro, bottom-up, sentiment, and valuation. And what do each one of those mean? It means, for example, it's not good enough to just have a macro view, right? I think the, the U.S. is going to do well this year and the Fed is not going to tighten as aggressively. That statement by itself is not sufficient 
you know, to put on an active view in these funds. It has to be triangulated with the other three pillars, you know, sentiment, bottom-up, and, and valuation. So while, while you may have a deep conviction view that the U.S. is going to do well this year, you have to always ask yourself, where is sentiment with regards to that, um, with regards to that view? What do valuations look like? And does the bottom-up research, and this is really critical, the bottom-up research meaning not just the asset allocation research that we have access to and the macro uh, research that we have access to, but the underlying research that my, my colleagues spoke about earlier today from the stock and credit pickers that Fidelity has across the world. You know, so we have to think about every active allocation decision we make in, uh, through the lens of those, those four pillars. And you know, we'll get into how some, of those, how some of those have affected current positioning, but that is our process. And, and again, that's not something that's, that's likely to change. And it's been very, a very useful and helpful tool for the last, well, decade at least. Okay, so what are we looking at here? The slide we're looking at right here is the positioning in the global balance portfolio. And what we're looking at are the active tilts, the sort of the, the, um, the pluses or minuses on top of the fund. And the fund, the, the, the underlying um, strategic allocation in the fund, or what's in that fund, is written in almost illegible font in the bottom. And, um, and what we're looking at here are the overweights and underweights on top of that 60-40 fund. So right now, that 60-40 fund is roughly a 64-36 fund with a, a slight overweight to equities, uh, sourced from an underweight to bonds. And what you're seeing in brackets or in diamonds is where that positioning was 12 months ago. So there are three takeaways that I'd like to, uh, I'd like to discuss from this slide, and David may have a, a few additional uh, points to add after I'm done. But the first important point is, you know, we do have a slight tilt, a slight overweight to equities. Now it's lower than it was a year ago because of the maturation of the business cycle and you know, aggressive Fed tightening and the inflation environment and, and a few other reasons. But we do have a slight overweight to equities. So again, that 60-40 is now a 63.6. But if you look at where the equity positioning is, you'll see that if we remove the commodity producer bar, right, the minus 2.1, plus 2.1, minus 1.2, and plus 0.8, roughly cancel each other out, meaning Excluding the commodity producer bucket, we're basically neutral on uh, equities from a geo geographic perspective. And we'll talk about why some of those are overweights and why some of those are underweights. So while it may look, like I just mentioned a few minutes ago, that the most important takeaway is that we, we are overweight equities, I was sort of um, masking the fact that if you exclude commodities, we're actually fairly neutral, neutral equities. Um, and then that's a meaningful change from a year ago. So the, the second point I'd like to make with regards to this slide is really a, a high conviction view and an important theme that has been in the portfolios for, well, predates me uh, on the team, uh, with an eye towards inflation protection. Right, so that commodity producer overweight, that plus 3.9% you see, that's gold and oil. And that position, uh, that overweight to commodity producers is held primarily because of our view on inflation. We've had a view on inflation for a long time that it would overshoot, that it would be stickier and stubborn at a high level. And we wanted assets in our funds, or overweights to assets in our funds, to asset classes rather, explicitly protect portfolios 
against the risk of elevated inflation. And there's no better asset class than oil and gold. And then very quickly on the bond side, you know, still a significant underweight um, to Canadian and global investment grade. We think the place to add or enhance the income side of this portfolio is really in the credit and spread sector. Uh, credit and spread sectors where we have access to really talented, talented underlying managers who really have a seat at the table and are able to um, help us allocate capital on, on the bond side. And then unsurprisingly, that inflation protection bar is there as well. In this portfolio, that's, that's tips. But again, that inflation protecting uh, nuance or position is really throughout, throughout our portfolios. And here it's shown on the commodity producers as well as inflation protection. And then the last point I'll make, and perhaps come up for air after that, is uh, the significant underweight we have to the Canadian dollar. Right? So that, that is one of the most often asked questions. Why, why do you have um, an underweight to the Canadian dollar um, and, and what's embodied in that view? The first thing I would say is we've, every quarter we write a, a very short three-page accessible jargon-free white paper uh, speak to your wholesaler uh, if, you, if you'd like to have a, have a look at that, where we've described a lot of this in a lot more detail. Um, but, you know, we have that Canadian um, dollar underweight because we think of the Canadian dollar as one way for us to build in some risk management into the portfolios. And what does that mean? It means the Canadian dollar is a cyclical currency. It's not a safe haven currency. Uh, in times of market stress, the Canadian dollar comes under pressure. Right? So think March 2020. And by us being underweight the Canadian dollar, we can build in a shock absorber or some risk management into the portfolio. So we'll get hurt less in, in, in the event of a risk-off event. The least satisfying answer to why that we have that minus 9.1 is because we have the minus 7.4 Canadian investment grade and the minus 2.1 Canadian equity position. That's kind of a weak answer. The real answer is it does relate to risk management. So let me leave it there and, and just check in with uh, David to see if he wants to add any, anything on top of that. Yeah, no, I think you, you've highlighted a lot of the, the main thoughts and themes that we have reflected across the positioning. I mean, I think the thing to emphasize is that, you know, as the cycle is maturing and as we see lingering risks around inflation and the tightness of monetary policy, you know, we do want to take, you know, a more defensive position. But when we think of a lot of the, the market moves, especially through the first half of the year, it felt like the market had gone too far in pricing in the worst case scenario. So we didn't want to necessarily chase that move to batten down the hatches and to prepare for uh, a very deep, prolonged recession. That wasn't the signal that we were getting through our process. It was time to take some chips off the table to find that relatively neutral balance between asset classes. And you can see you know, another point on the slide just on the right-hand side is that we did start to build up some of our, our short-term allocation. So generally, we don't want to hold cash for a really long period of time, but given some of the opportunities that were being presented to us, it made sense to have a little bit more dry powder than we otherwise would to protect against both bonds and equities under pressure. And as things turned, we would give us the opportunity to, to respond to asset classes that have likely moved too far, just given the very strong swing in sentiment from you know, fairly buoyant to ab abject pessimism in a very short period of time. Okay, so lots of questions coming in as a result of this slide. I also have one, and that is where it comes to the, specifically on the overweights, the commodity side, and then on that fixed income side. Can you share with us any type of specific, you know, retail mandates that you're buying more of or any of the specific PMs on both sides of the ledger here? 
Yeah, in terms of the indiv individual building blocks, I mean, we generally start with wanting to have a, a great deal of diversification. So we'll use a selection of, of Canadian managers. The largest allocation is the Canadian Disciplined Equity, which is the analyst-run fund, which gives us a broad market exposure. On top of that, we'll want to take in a diversified approach. So we'll have, you know, Dan Dupont's uh, Canadian large cap with Hugo's opportunities, with Mark Schmale's Global Innovators and Joel Tillinghast's Intrinsic Value. So when you look at all those different building blocks, what we're trying to achieve generally is that high degree of diversification of bringing together a lot of strong managers. So to go back to that prior slide, that security selection piece is really achieved by getting that collection of very, very strong managers. And I think your question leads to a little bit of some of the factor exposures of growth versus value that you know on the margin, we'll tilt a little bit more towards when uh, we think that theme has further to run. But broadly speaking, what we're trying to achieve ultimately is that sense of, of diversification across factors. Okay. So why don't we talk a little bit about the, the bond sleeve? And we got a question here, the second one that's listed there. Because a lot of advisors obviously have their investors in a balanced product like this. And a lot of investors are coming in now because they got their Q2 statements as of the end of June. And they're like, oh my gosh, a balance fund can go negative? They've never seen this before. Obviously, a big part of that is the, the downtick in the, the equity market so far this year. But as well, it's the first time we're seeing a decrease on the fixed income sleeve. So just overall, given what's going on on the fixed income side of the world, what are you guys thinking about? Obviously, we were underweight, so we were cushioned a little bit uh, there. But what are your thoughts now as rates have come up? Yeah, there's some opportunities. And I'll let Alon touch on a little bit of the, the macro that goes into you know, the thinking on, on Fed policy and central bank policy more generally. But you know, one of the things that we were able to do is, again, provide a little bit of protection on the downside by being underweight investment grade and having selective credit exposures uh, to help try to leverage our research platform. But you know, now that we've seen rates maybe moderate a little bit uh, through that process, we did see some value coming back to long-term treasuries. Uh, it gets into the wider macro conversation of recession and, and central bank policy, which we're happy to, to dip into. But we have added a little bit in terms of long-term government bond exposures, both in the U.S. as well as in in Canada. And we've paired that also with, as I mentioned earlier, that increase in cash. So we're trying to generally still keep duration fairly close to the benchmark, but seeing the opportunity that if we inevitably end up in a recession, which I think you know is, is almost a certainty given what central banks are likely to continue to do, uh, we want to have some protection on the, on the very long end of the curve as that view comes into fruition. Okay. And would you have any recommendation for those people that have gone, you know what, I've had it with bonds for now, even though yields have gone, come up. Any recommendation from a standpoint of uh, solution that we've got there? Right. Uh, I mean, we have, again, from the perspective of uh, some of our funds that may be a little bit more fixed income focused for more conservative investors, we have a, a range of monthly income funds that can help do that. And, and the monthly income funds specifically also pick up on those higher coupon uh, yields that are becoming available as rates go up. So again, the, the, the design for us is to have a product for every type of, of investor. So if you have clients that have specific needs within the income side of the portfolio, we have that covered. If there are others that have a longer term investment horizon that want to be more leveraged into the equity portion of, of the market, there are funds that can do that. And we actually recently launched a managed portfolio that's 100% equity. Um, I, I see now you were leading me mm -hmm. to there. That's where I was going. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I took the long road to it's get okay. there, but we it's got okay. there eventually. So, yes, yeah, so as one of our managed portfolios, again, leveraging the equity platform we have, uh, it's 100% equity. So, same kind of diversification across regions, across managers, same kind of tilts that show up 
in the rest of our FMPs, but for those that think bonds are a four-letter word, and I know that doesn't match perfectly, that fund exists for them. Okay, thanks for that. Gord, can I just touch on sure. one thing? Um, so one of the things you mentioned in, in the previous question was you know, year-to-date performance and you know, how fixed income and the equity side have been, have been fairly painful. You know, channeling my inner David Wolf, you, we can't really hide from that, right? So if mm-hmm. we're running multi-asset class um, strategies and both sides of the building blocks have been painful year to date, the bet, you know, we can be less painful, which is what we've managed to, to achieve, but it, it, will be, it, it will be, from an absolute perspective, um, you know, not a very enjoyable ride. I think the more, perhaps the more interesting question is why is that happening, right? Why have uh, bonds not sort of offset some of the declines in inequities? And as is the case with many of the questions you're going to ask me, the answer is inflation. In our view, the answer is inflation. Right, so one of, the, one of the reasons we believe inflation is so damaging to multi-asset class portfolios, and again, this is in a white paper, um, in many of the white papers we've written, is inflation erodes or destroys the inverse correlation between stocks and bonds. Right? Stocks do well in periods of growth, and bonds sort of provide some uh, shelter or, or income in periods of stress. That comes under pressure. That, that relationship comes under pressure in the presence of, of elevated inflation. The best example we had before this year was the 1970s. Right? So unless you owned barrels of oil in your basement, uh, because they were largely uninvestable at the time, you really w- were unable to protect a sort of multi-asset class 60-40 portfolio against the damaging effects of, effects of inflation. Year to date, I think we've seen another, um, you know, we've definitely seen inflation. Right? There's no doubt about that. And we've also seen the damaging effects inflation brings on um, a multi-asset class portfolio. Okay. You know, from a standpoint of some of the questions coming in, here's one here. What are your views on emerging markets? And you've given an overweight there. Now, we do still have a a small overweight there. Uh, When we think about, you know, the the composition of emerging markets, again, this is something that we want to definitely lever an active building block. So the emerging market index itself, you know, has a, a broad exposure to many different countries that, individually you may not want to have necessarily a a dramatic allocation to. So letting an active manager navigate that space is one of the ways that we definitely find a way to enhance value. And the view on emerging markets itself, I mean, we think of there being pretty uniform tightening in monetary policy around the world. We have, you know, that's the case in Canada and Europe and the United States uh, and the UK. But the one central bank out there that's actually loosening policy uh, is in China. So there is some evidence that cyclically, China is starting to turn a corner. They've struggled mightily under the zero COVID policy. So any steps to pairing that back can release a little bit more economic momentum specifically into that region. And again, that can be further enhanced by uh, the loosening of financial conditions through monetary policy. So if you want to think purely about where there might be some cyclical uplift, uh, it would accrue probably first and foremost in emerging markets. So that's the motivation there for having a, a toe or two in the water and trying to see through the, the rest of the cycle to see what parts of the world might start to look better. We still admittedly have concerns around some of the structural issues within China with respect to the property sector uh, as one that's very high on our list, as well as some of the underlying geopolitical tensions that exist within the region. But again, having that active manager can stick handle around some of those pr- more problematic themes and bring in the cyclical story that if you wanted to, to paint a, a positive view of the next year to year and a half, that might be that 
it's probable that that can be led by emerging markets as opposed to developed market economies that are still tightening policies, still trying to wrestle inflation back to the floor. Okay, thanks for those comments. John, can I get you to bring the slide back up just terms of the uh, positioning? Because one area that I didn't see on that slide uh, is private debt, private equity. And as we we're just talking about at the break here, uh, during lunch, uh, a couple of big pension plans have recently announced uh, how they're doing, CPP and Ontario Teachers. Any comments at all on adding a sleeve of private debt or private equity? Because apparently it's making a bit of a difference in both those institutional pension plans. Yeah, no, there's there are certain things that, that can be done within the private equity space that you can smooth valuations. So not necessarily marking those assets to market on a very rapid frequency. I think maybe part of the reason why some mm-hmm. of those uh, institutional investors have done well through a period where public markets have been under a lot of pressure. Um, but to get back to the core of the question, you know, we think of all the building blocks that are available to us, and we're always open to having new building blocks and new capabilities uh, provided to us. So we're, at the end of the day, we're trying to add value above and beyond uh, a benchmark through a cycle, and we're very cognizant of of managing risk as part of that process. So any of the tools that we can find around the world that we can bring into our funds to try to enhance that process will certainly keep an open mind towards. So Great. definitely have an eye to the future on the, on that front. Okay. I, mean, I think, I think Gore, that speaks to research, right? Mm-hmm. So we have a research-driven process, not just in our overweights and underweights and the research input that we're getting. I mean, research goes into the construction of a fund, right? I'm thinking about inflation-focused, FMP 100, the addition of alternatives, for example, at some point. You know, when I used to get 25 questions a day on when we were going to add crypto, right? So <laughs> th- there's research. You get fewer questions when the line is straight down. But mm-hmm. um, r- research underpins the... The tactical overweights and underweights we see here, the managers that we choose to form the hockey uh, bench, I hope I got that right, and, um, and third, you know, the, the underlying assets that, that make up a, a fund as well. Okay, both of you worked at the Bank of Canada, so I'm not surprised that this question came up from the audience. How do, how do monetary policy actions by the central banks around the world impact your decisions? Sure. So <laughs> this is always a, it's always tricky getting a question like this because we all three of us, David Wolf's not here, but we all spent time at the at the Bank of Canada. You know, so there's a bunch of different dire- directions we can go in with this question. What's happening right now with monetary policy is critical to what's happening in our view in terms of the tactical overweights and underweights that we're taking across the fund. So let me back up a little bit. Right now, inflation is at 40 or 50 year highs, right? Unbelievably high. The labor market is largely healed in both Canada, well, it's definitely healed in Canada, and it's largely healed in the U.S. And we had a view for a long time last year that rate expectations, consensus rate expectations, were far too, I don't want to say lax, but they were far too um, flat, right? The normalization was, was, was scheduled to start in the second half of this year and be very tame. Um, and we had an opposing view. We had a view that, look, inflation is not just transitory or temporary, right? That's a word we're not allowed to use anymore. And it's gonna remain elevated and be sticky at that level for a while. So, you know, I used, I used to be the head of inflation and commodities research in, in Boston. I still look at 354 lines of details every month when the CPI report is published. It it's was be exciting. It was, it's very exciting for me. I, I don't know what that means, but... Uh, <laughs> and I can talk about all 354 lines with anyone in the break if they'd like. But, Really, it was clear to us early on that this, inf- that this inflation was not just going to shoot higher and then quickly subside to the 
2% that we knew and loved for the last 20 years. And because of that, monetary policy was going to have to take a much more aggressive stance towards elevated inflation. For many central banks, it's the only mandate. Right? So the US has a kind of a squishier mandate, but in Canada, it is the only mandate. It's the only job of the central bank. Um, and because of that, rate expectations, uh, our rate expectations were much more forceful than what was sort of priced into markets. And that's why we have tilts towards inflation protection. And the last point I'll make here is it's all, it also goes a long way in explaining why we have a Canadian equity underweight and why we have a US equity overweight. So the US is a very resilient economy. It has a much more flexible labor market and it's better diversified across sectors. Um, the Canada, it's just not the case, right? So Canada has a less resilient economy because of some of its sector composition. But more importantly, our view, um, and again, this is something we talk about in our, in our last paper, is uh, aggressive monetary policy normalization in Canada, across the world, was gonna be more hurtful in Canada because of elevated debt levels, right? So Canadians have done what every uh, person with, you know, what low rates incentivize them to do, which is bought, you know, cars, houses, sea dues, ski dues, ski cabins, condos, uh, I don't know what else to add to that list. Boats. Boats, right? Uh, but the problem is, I mean, that's fine. Carrying that debt load is fine when rates are low, but when rates move aggressively higher, it becomes problematic. And that really goes a long way in explaining why we have that um, Canadian equity underweight because of the sort of the fragility in, that's embodied in the, in the Canadian economy. Okay. Can so I, let's, Can I succinctly try to bring some of that together? Sure. Because I think... The biggest question we're trying to handle with the cycle right now and our positioning is how interest rate sensitive is the global economy. We've seen a lot of debt increase globally. That's particularly true in Canada. So in trying to figure out how central banks will eventually drive the economy into recession, and, and to put it even more bluntly than the way Alon described it, central banks effectively screwed up. They kept stimulus in the system for a lot longer than what was ultimately required, and they've seen the inflationary aftermath. So now they're trying to desperately scramble, and they've taken these outsized elevator rides up in, in policy rates to the point where they're now kind of in that, that nebulous neutral cloud. So they don't know with precision how high they need to go to bring inflation under control and how high they would potentially go to actually drive the economy into recession. So that interest rate sensitivity, in our view, is a really important part of that, of understanding that level. So when deciding between an exposure to Canada or the United States, our preference is quite clearly for the U.S., given that the U.S. is a less interest rate sensitive economy when compared to Canada, where that sensitivity is much higher, compounded by the vulnerabilities that exist on the part of household balance sheets. So central banks and their thinking and, and how they're responding is really probably the most dominant theme that I think everyone needs to pay very careful attention to over the next year or two, for sure. So on that note, so you feel the central banks um, probably didn't act early enough uh, in terms of rising interest rates to, to uh, contain this a little bit. But, you know, in fairness to them, they've never gone through this in their um, lifetime. And the most recent bout of significant inflation was through the 1970s and early 80s. So is there anything that central bankers, you think, can learn from that that they can apply today? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're evolving their thought process. I, it's an open question. I do hope that they will learn, um, certainly from this. And it's the essence of the shock. So the 70s was the last example of the global economy experiencing a severe supply side shock. 
supply side had is traditionally assumed in central bank models to be pretty fast to adjust. So what had replaced supply shocks generally over the last 30 years, 40 years, are demand shocks, which is arguably easier for a central bank to calibrate policy towards. And so when they encounter another supply shock, their models effectively let them down. They're maybe the models that Alon and I spent time building, so maybe we have some responsibility in that as well. But broadly speaking, you know, the supply side of the economy was something that they mismanaged. And there's only so much they can do necessarily to, to try to remedy that, and that's what, why we're seeing them trying to make up for lost time now. But I think you know, going forward, again, central banks like us are trying to understand that optimal level of policy. And I think it's a, it's a challenge just also, you know, given some of the headlines that have shown at least headline CPI cresting. So today, Canadian CPI came out this morning, and you did see headline move down a bit. But what was maybe lost in that headline was the fact that the core measure of inflation, which is ultimately reflecting the persistence factor, persistent factors that Alon spoke to, that actually pushed higher. So that's what central banks need to try to understand. And central banks need to learn that if they don't respond in kind to that type of shock, they can risk expectations becoming unhinged. And that's what brought Volcker into fame was he was the one that basically caused enough of a recession to align in inflation expectations back to lower levels. So that's the fear of what happens if they get it wrong. And we're trying to see the probability of that given the evolution of, of the inflation data, which again has likely more persistence than what the market and economists currently believe, and what that means for the growth side of the economy as well. Okay, so sticking with inflation, uh, most of your mandates, obviously, you're skewing the portfolio to get protection during this inflationary um, times, but you've, we've also got a product that's specifically designed for this, correct? Yep. Yeah. Sure. You want yeah. to talk about one? Uh, yeah, so, you know, in, in September of last year, we launched the inflation-focused fund, um, first of its kind in Canada. It is based on the assets that are in that fund, which, which is roughly a um, 50-50 fund, Those, the asset classes that are in that fund are specifically designed to, or, or research shows, hedge inflation risk well. Right? So a third of that fund is global natural resources, 10% of that fund is real estate, almost 10% of that fund is gold, and then 50% of the fund are fixed income asset classes that also do a good job of hedging inflation um, risk. And unsurprisingly, since launch, Right, it has certainly done better than a 60-40 portfolio. And again, the, the other sort of unique thing with that fund is by construction, it, it does very well in periods of inflationary stress. But the other thing that we did in the construction of that fund is we made it so that it wasn't costly to hold in the event that this inflation subsides and we move back to sort of the, the environment of the last, say, 20 or 25 years. Right? Compared, compared to a traditional 60-40, it roughly keeps up in other market regimes. Okay. So uh, other headlines making uh, the news today was, of course, uh, housing prices. So can't let you leave the stage here without some thoughts. <laughs> Just overall, obviously, we're in, we're in the hottest uh, real estate market here in Vancouver, and you guys live in the other one uh, in Toronto. So just your overall <laughs> thoughts on the market. Yeah, I mean, this is subsumed by our comments, I think, more broadly on the Canadian economy and the challenges that we see. And and again, we've seen the vulnerability for a number of years in terms of the debt levels that have continued to rise on the part of Canadian households, and we hadn't really seen much in the way of a catalyst. So now interest rates are the clear catalyst that challenge that, that narrative. So I think it's, it's hard to necessarily come to a very positive conclusion, I think. You have 
some structural factors that will always underpin Canadian housing. It's a strong country around the world for immigration. You have lots of continued migration into the cities, but cyclically speaking, I think it's an area of, of tremendous vulnerability as those who have taken on too much debt need to spend some time paying down that debt. And you know, just bringing in the comparison to the United States, the U.S. went through that process post 0809, and it took the better part of a decade for that balance sheet repair to run its course. And through that period of time, U.S. growth was, was weaker than, than average because for every dollar of income entering a household, part of that now was being used explicitly to pay down debt, which left a, a smaller share to finance you know, traditional spending. So that, I think, is the road ahead for Canadian economy. And again, bringing it back to the positioning that we have, uh, that's something that we're very uh, aware of and see as a challenge for Canada. So want to till the portfolios to other regions that have that lower interest rate sensitivity and don't have those specific vulnerabilities tied into housing. Okay, thank you. Why don't we finish off right here with this uh, question that just got submitted. So where do global economies stand with regards to the business cycle? And it seems that they're transitioning through the cycle fast this time, I guess, compared to the history. What do you guys see in terms of the speed of this? Yeah, sure. I mean, on, on housing, just really quickly on housing, you know, if I, I left SFU 20 years ago, if home prices continue to fall for the next 20 years, then maybe I might be able to afford a house in, in, in Vancouver. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's certainly not the base case. So in terms of where global economies stand, in regards to the business cycle. So the business cycle is a critical process into our portfolio management process and how we view various regions around the world. Right now, we believe most economies are in late cycle. I don't think it's impossible right now that Canada is in a recession. Right? So this is something that we've discussed before. It's not impossible that Canada is in a recession. Right? It's not just two. And in the U.S., it's not, it's not good enough to just have two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But, you know, if the debt load from carrying a lot of this debt moves higher and Canadian households sort of reel in consumer spending to make sure they can afford their monthly mortgage payment and businesses run off some of the inventories that they've loaded up on over the last year and a half, that decline in consumer spending and that runoff in inventories will create a decline in GDP, right? And so that, that could create a recession. What I would say is the last two recessions we had were really odd. COVID was a really strange recession. In 2008, the financial crisis was a one in 100 year event. For us to get a more normal recession, not to downplay how, how awful they are, it's not impossible. And I, I think it's probably the likely ending point of the business cycle. I would say we do have, um, we do still have China in a, in a growth recession right now, um, which, which explains some of the questions from earlier in, in terms of their Stimulus. I think the big factor there quickly is just the notion of saying that how many, how much damage there's there within the wider sense of, of financial, within financial household balance sheets, within corporate balance sheets. And the unique aspect now is that generally speaking, you know, corporate balance sheets, specifically in the U.S., are much healthier now. So it can be more of a garden variety type of recession as opposed to something that needs an extended period to bring balance sheets back in line globally. And again, Canada, unfortunately, is the exception to that global narrative. Okay, gentlemen, we're out of time. Thank you very much for coming to Vancouver and sharing your thoughts here on the $90 billion that you manage for Canadian investors. Thanks, Appreciate Chris. it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. 
You can visit fidelity.ca for more information on future live webcasts, and don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter. Thanks again. See you next time.